Hello, and welcome to SSCS Chip Chat, where we talk to the people behind integrated circuits. My guest today is Dr. Shantanu Chakraborty. He is a professor at Washington University in St. Louis. His main interests are exploring the extremes of low-power circuits. We talk about self-powered sensors, cyborg insects, and thermodynamically driven circuits. There's also some ad advice on what a young academic needs to get their career started. But before we get to that, I have a request for you. Please tell us what you thought about the show and how we can make it better. The email is chipchat at fastmail.com. Also, if you like the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it and leave a review on iTunes. Dr. Chakravarti, welcome to SSCS Chip Chat. I like to start all my podcasts with a little bit of background about my guests. Where did you grow up and um, what, is your, what was your interest in uh, electronics? How did you get started in electronics? So I grew up in New Delhi, India. And uh, initially, I was not that interested in electronics when I was a kid. But then um, growing up, um, you know, once uh, we had a black and white TV when we were kids. Yeah. And our TV used to break all the time. So <laughs> just seeing my dad struggle with, you know, the different antenna configurations and trying out all the different knobs, that kind of got me into the whole domain of understanding how the TV works. And then when we got uh, my first, uh, I would say, high-fidelity um, uh, VCR and uh, transistor radio. That's when I think my real interest in electronics began because I could take it apart and see what's inside. So some of our listeners might not even know what a VCR is because yeah. they have been dead for a while, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a video recording. It's a video recorder which used like these magnetic tapes. Right. And uh, that was like in 1980s. But <laughs> yeah, I remember. Uh, playing around with those. I think we had, uh, we'd usually get a VCR on rent. Yes. And then it would never work, so you'd, because it was full of gunk, and you'd take a swab of alcohol and try to clean it up so you could actually watch a picture. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and then also, you know, there were these uh, uh, these audio tapes too, which yeah. were magnetic. And I remember it was the same problem with the audio tapes as well. It, it, it would just, you have to clean, keep cleaning it to make sure that the quality was good, the sound quality. <laughs> You started because of uh, black and white TVs that were uh, not working. Yes. <laughs> it's, it still has a vivid memory about those experiences. And especially, you know, it would, it would stop functioning in the middle of a cricket match. <laughs> <laughs> That's the most annoying time. Yes. Um, did you do anything in electronics back in high school? or? Well, so, uh, so I had a very... Um, enthusiastic uh, teacher, bio biology teacher. Okay. And she would encourage us to participate in uh, different type of contests and class projects. So through that, I remember I still have a very vivid memory of a, of a project where we had to show that smoking is injurious to health. And we had to build a, va a small vacuum pump. Okay. And my responsibility was to build that vacuum pump with some of the spare electronic parts that we had, some of the mechanical valves. Okay. And uh, but that was my first design experience in in high school. Oh wow. 
and and then yeah with the project went really well we got a lot of kudos for that and i think uh, from that day onwards actually you know, from that experience it seemed that you know i i got really interested in the electronic side of things so you uh, went to college at uh, iit delhi right yes which is one of the toughest schools to get into um well uh, people might argue it's actually the, maybe the other IITs which are tougher <laughs> to get into but yeah for for me the decision was to stay close to home so <laughs> uh, so yeah i just decided to go to iit delhi okay that's easy enough uh, being close to home and family is important but did you have to stay in in the dorm in the dorm still the, though yeah and because that's that was my first time staying outside home and so you know maybe it was there at the back of the mind if something went wrong i could still go back home okay <laughs> <laughs> in dorms are uh, notorious for mischief that students get into did you that is true but you know that was part of the culture okay. so <laughs> so there is this break in period where okay. you know when as a freshman you go in and you, there was this unofficial get to know period with okay. the seniors and yeah. that's how they would try to get uh, you to interact with them um uh, yes the first week was painful okay because you had to because they would make you like you know sing in the middle of a street <laughs> and you know but uh, but later on you realized that that interaction was very helpful um because then you became best friends with some of the seniors yeah yeah that definitely was my experience too um so you actually took an unusual path on that you ended up um taking a job right after finishing college well so uh, when i graduated there were uh, so iit used to have this career services so i had two offers one from ibm india okay. and then there was this another company which came knocking that was a uh, it was considered a startup at that time which was called qualcomm okay and they were s- setting up their first cell phone site cdms site in india Oh. and they needed field engineers to help them with the whole process um again my decision was whether i wanted to go to bangalore to be with ibm or i wanted to stay close to home in delhi and be with qualcomm so i decided to choose qualcomm just again because of the nostalgia factor but i think that was one of the best decisions i ever made yeah So you were actually in Delhi not not in San Diego. I started as a field engineer okay. but then as a part of the job I had to travel to okay. US. Okay. Um so uh, but my primary responsibility was the Delhi site. Okay. But I guess you were not happy with the corporate job and ended up um, So uh, to be honest the first year uh, as yeah. a field engineer was the best experience I ever had. Okay. And it was mainly because for the first time you are seeing a system work and because you are responsible for uh, deploying the site you have to bring or assemble the system from scratch which means that you get to see every component that goes into you know a cell phone tower and at that time this is 1996 you know this uh, cell phones were not popular in fact you know there was hardly you see anybody carrying any cell phones yeah so for us it was also close to you know science fiction as well yeah. that hey you are you're setting this thing up it will uh, it allows you to talk wirelessly over long distances and so we f- at least i felt that and i was working in the 
in the state of the art. Uh, plus, as field engineers, you have to be responsible for everything yeah. in terms of like not, not only the software, the hardware, the system integration. A customer interacts with you. So if something goes down, you have to quickly fix it. I still remember, you know, I didn't do so many all-nighters in my college, but I did more all-nighters in, in the, my first job in Qualcomm, babysitting the site. Oh, wow. Uh, just to make sure that it was functional. And this was mainly because this, uh, the system was being validated by the Department of Telecom. So we needed to make sure that everything worked perfectly according to the specifications. So the Department of Telecom is um, somewhat like FCC in the U.S.? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So and I remember they would just, the Department of Telecom official will pick up the phone in the middle of the night to check if the cell phone has gone, the tower has gone down or not. <laughs> <laughs> so you had to make sure everything was running properly 24 hours. Oh, wow. That's a lot of responsibility for a young engineer. It, it was, but <laughs> then that's where you learn. That's yeah. where you learn because at sometimes, you know, if you are the only person uh, that's on a night shift, then when the system goes down, you have to know how to start everything from scratch. Okay. And it doesn't mean there's only one tiny subsystem. It's like starting from the BTS, which is the base transceiver system, which is the RF part, all the way to the home location register, which is the billing part. So you have to know what sequence and how to boot things up. And if there was any problem in, the, in configuration, you have to know exactly in and out of what went wrong. So if I need to set up a cell tower, I should come talk to you. Well, uh, my information <laughs> now is outdated. So, you know, this was 96. I'm pretty sure, you know, things have changed a lot. So this was IS-95A. That was like the old CDMA standard. And I don't think anybody uses that anymore. Uh, probably true. But I think this general shape of things are probably still the same. Yes, the fundamentals are still the same. They're like, you know, this was the first time when we were actually doing roaming calls. Yeah. And... Uh, so the whole concept of roaming uh, was fairly new, uh, but we started with only one cell tower. Okay. But even then, we were trying out different roaming strategies there. How do you roam with one cell tower? Uh, we would drop the call and then come <laughs> back <laughs> in. <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good trick. Um, so what made you go to go want to do a PhD? So uh, field engineering for one year was the honeymoon period where you know I traveled a lot. Yeah. Um, I learned a lot, but then at, at the end of the day, once you're very familiar with the system, you realize that, okay, you need to learn a little bit more. Like the, so I knew what the input and output of the system was, but I was not very familiar with what, how the system was designed. So that's where I decided to go into software engineering to okay. understand like how some of the switches are programmed, how the switches are made, um, uh, at least how the software is written. So I applied uh, to the San Diego division uh, of Qualcomm. And I moved to San Diego to work for the network switching division. Okay. Um, but then I realized that you know once you pick um, a specific subsystem to work in, it's like you know dancing around within the four walls. So you don't get to see the whole system at all. I, n you don't see it at all, the whole system. Mm. Um, which I was able to appreciate as a field engineer. So then being at Qualcomm for about a year and a half as a software engineer, I realized that maybe I needed more deeper understanding of how the fundamentals work. Uh, plus, I wanted to go into also a different field, maybe a bio more oriented towards biomedical engineering. 
and still I still carrying that uh, thing from high school. <laughs> well, that <laughs> that is true. That that is true. That is true. And and I I feel that there were a lot of uh, um, you know fortunate turns yeah. that uh, that occurred. So I remember uh, my undergraduate uh, professor uh, mentioning that you know there is an opportunity, a research opportunity at Johns Hopkins. That you know if you want to you know take this opportunity, this is the time. So I had to decide whether I needed to quit Qualcomm in 1999, uh, which is get rid of all the stocks that I had, stock options, or and go back to grad school. Or I stuck with Qualcomm, mm. so I had to make that decision. Yeah. But then, you know, my PhD advisor still says that, you know, whenever he introduces me, he says, "Hey, look, you know, he he gave up millions of dollars to come and do a PhD with me." <laughs> yeah, which is probably true because Qualcomm <laughs> became big after that. Yes, '99. <laughs> I remember it. Just uh, the stocks went through the roof. <laughs> but but then, you know, that's how that's how my PhD advisor still introduces me. <laughs> You did a lot, leave a lot on the table, but there was no way to know at the time. There was yeah. no way to know. There yeah. was no way to do. And then you know, I, if I if I had stuck around it with Qualcomm, I would not have done a PhD. Yeah. So that's where I think there are these sliding door principles where you just you know you go through one door and your life changes completely. Um, I don't think I would have become a faculty member if I had stuck with yeah. Qualcomm. And I think plenty of companies had trouble in their dot com bust. Qualcomm was Qualcomm one was of the okay. ones that survived. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Qualcomm was okay. So how was uh, how was it like to go back to academia after? It was difficult. It yeah. was difficult because you know in, uh, when you are um, you know when you are in the corporate world, you are getting paid yeah. handsomely. Yeah. And then you suddenly become a graduate student. You have to you get a big pay cut. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, the experience, the university experience compensates for everything else. Uh, so initially, I think the first six months were a little bit uh, difficult for adjustment. But then, you know, once you get the hang of it, once you get, uh, you know, you become buddies with your uh, lab mates, uh, the experience is nothing that you can compare with uh, yeah. in a corporate world. Yeah. <laughs> so you had a good lab team that you worked with we had an excellent lab team we used to hung, hang out together all the time okay yeah we still we still, so most of them end up ended up being faculty members oh, wow. so we still whenever we meet in conferences it just brings old memories back yeah high of cheating bunch of people there and oh, well yeah i think there also th there were these uh, you know this this was on the right yeah. time that we all graduated yeah and because the first maybe first person decided to go to academia we also thought okay this could have been a possible route for us as well <laughs> um, plus you know we had i had an excellent phd mentor you did your phd with gert kavenbergs who was um uh, on our episode on, on our podcast in an earlier episode how was it uh, what did you work on there and how was the experience over there so uh, when i first arrived there gert told me like you know he had this uh, sponsored project okay. uh, which was through what's known as catalyst foundation okay uh, the good thing about catalyst foundation is that uh, that the fellowship is not tied with any deliverables it's it's it funds basic fundamental research 
So you come up with solutions and you come up with, uh, uh, you know, different twists and turns of your PhDs and the, the money is not tied to any specific outcomes. Right. But then the overall goal was to build a speech recognizer mm -hmm. um, that fits on a watch. Okay. And then the Gerd, and then Gerd put, put a twist on it saying it has to be analog. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> So, so given all those constraints, not you know, ambitious at all. <laughs> so you had to learn about speech processing, <laughs> machine learning, analog circuits, yeah. you know, all in one thesis. Well, <laughs> but then again, as I said, you know, without that push, I yeah. would not have delved into all these different areas. Did it work? Well, uh, so again, <laughs> you know, at, in a very yeah. controlled condition, uh, I was able to show that, yes, you can get very low power uh, oh. uh, and it can do and recognize basic phonemes. Okay. Uh, but on the other hand, yes, it's analog. It has its own drawbacks. Yeah. So the, so the PhD experience also taught me that what not to do in analog. <laughs> uh, so it's always a game of trade-offs. Yeah. There are some good things that you could efficiently implement in analog, but then there's some things that you should just delegate to the world of digital. Right. And I think that is also uh, helped me in, in pursuing my future research when I decided to go to academia. Yeah, which brings us to, so you went, um, after your PhD, you became a professor at uh, Michigan, Michigan State. State. Yes. In, um, where's Michigan State again? East Lansing. East Lansing, okay. How was that? So, uh, this was my first academic job. Yeah. And uh, it was a very unique experience uh, because East Lansing is not Baltimore. Yeah. And so, first of all, yes, it's a it's a small college town. Yeah. Uh, the so you had to first of all get used to being in a public school environment, which means that you're dealing with a lot of undergraduate students. Ah. Um, uh, and the emphasis was more was to balance more, uh, I would say, research and education in the right manner. So, but fortunately, you know, I had an excellent department chair, you know, who also just started a few years ago, and he wanted to push the department to more towards research. So he gave uh, flexibility to l all the new assistant professors to say, okay, you know, you chart your own path on whatever you want to do for research, we will try to make sure that we, we will give you less administrative load and teaching load. So, which is unusual, yeah. but then, you know, the, but uh, the, but that person, he's now the vice president of the university. So you oh. could see that he had the right, you know, academic or administrative acumen. Yeah, that's unusual. I think the junior professors usually get saddled with all the Yes, yes, <laughs> but fortunately, you okay. know, the, the, uh, I think because yeah. the, the the department chair wanted to make a difference, and he wanted to make sure that the research was the yeah. main bread and butter, right. um, and which it which helped, which helped a lot because many of the new faculty members who started at the same time I did, you know, we all had a pretty thriving research program, right, and while we were there. So you had to start. Did you have to start your own lab? From scratch. Yes, you had to start. So you, the first, as I said, the first uh, student that you hire is yourself. Okay. 
and then <laughs> you hire the next student, the number two. So you practically are you are a, a postdoc in your own lab. Oh wow! Uh, assembling things and making sure everything you know is done properly. And then once you get a student, the first student, you train the student in your own image, hmm. uh, because they are going to you know kind of follow your example so you have to be ma- you have to make sure you show up in the lab you stay late you work you know long hours and then once the first student is trained they carry the culture okay. and this is something that also gert also set as an example because i still remember he would do all nighters with us oh well <laughs> Desi- <laughs> designing chips he would sit with us huh. and he would do all nighters with us Well, so uh, but then you know once the first student is trained the culture is set in the lab then the next batch of students they automatically follow the first guy. Oh. So did you have to go find funding or yet? Yes, so yes. again you know that yeah. was always the case is so it was a little bit of a struggle because uh, you don't know how to even approach right the problem. So fortunately this is where I had a mentor in as one of the junior faculty who also started at the same time fortunately he had a postdoctoral experience and he knew what you know you know how do you actually approach program managers pitch ideas to them and then maybe write proposals in a specific manner so that you are selling the science okay so i learned a lot from him Okay. Uh but once you get the hang of it then it becomes a second nature to you. Okay. So if you're a young faculty member you should go find a mentor definitely to. Yes, because it it uh, so it just smoothens the road. Okay. Meaning otherwise you will struggle you will do a random walk. Yeah. So rather than doing you know going through bumps, you know, if somebody can, you know, clearly tell you what are the funding agencies looking for, that yeah. generally helps you a lot. Yeah, there's no other way to learn this stuff is it's not it's not easy yeah it's not easy and now uh, being at washu i am serving as a mentor for many of the junior faculty yeah. so i understand and i kind of tell them hey you know you should just go you know do this this and this this so you just cut all these other um, i would say these this pre notions that uh, a fresh graduate has on being a faculty yeah. you know, because you tell them that okay funding is mainly how you sell science is not like you are trying to say that you are getting epsilon here or epsilon there it's mainly a broader picture you're giving them you're showing them the forest not the trees yeah and that's the difficult part is because when you're gr- a fresh graduate you see the f- actually the trees and then you slowly appreciate that okay where does the tree fit into the forest <laughs> <laughs> so not only do you have to be good at research you have to be good at sales you have to go sales <laughs> you have to be your own shrink uh, because <laughs> oh you have gosh. to be always motivated mm. because if you're not motivated your students won't be motivated and then uh, and it's like running your own small business yeah um, once you get funding you have to manage your personnel you have to make sure that you know the right students are working on it and if the students are not motivated you may have to be will say no to them um how do you say no to some of the students um in terms of like no okay we are we are not going to support them anymore because they are not performing at the level that you expect so so yeah you are it's like practically running a small business with a human resource oh well. <laughs> <laughs> what kinds of things did you work on at 
uh, Michigan State? So in Michigan State, my uh, research took a little bit of a turn because my training was more on uh, machine learning, uh, being with GERD, you know, and yeah. then also a little bit of neuromorphic uh, speech processing. Uh, so in, in, in MSU, I kept the analog part because okay. that I was I was genuinely interested and intrigued by a lot of things that you can do in analog. Uh, but f again, uh, by sheer luck, my next door office mate was a structural engineer who also started at the same time. And we used to hang out and, uh, for many of the lunches and he would describe all the problems that structural engineers faced in terms of sensing. Yeah. Um, like... Uh, the current state of the infrastructure, uh, how there are not many sensors which are out there. And his goal was to say that, okay, if you can design a sensor that can last for a pretty long time, that can monitor the condition of many of these structures, then it would help that specific domain area a lot. And at that time, structural health monitoring was, was just a budding area. It was not. A, so, so we decided on pursuing a path where we would design we would design sensors using analog techniques but then try to make sure that it lasts for a long time uh, we explored many of the energy harvesting scenarios and then we settled down to some kind of a self-powering uh, strategy where you know the vibration on the bridge or strain variations inside a structure would power the electronics itself so if that's the case you don't need batteries at all you just need to be able to come and retrieve the data. Um, so that idea, when we pitched to the sponsoring agencies, they liked it a lot, so we got our first funding based on that. And that started the whole domain. And now, even at WashU, have continued that. So um, you know, we have matured the technology enough that many of these sensors are now deployed on yeah. the Mackinac Bridge. Mm -hmm. We are constantly collecting the data uh, the sensors have survived for the last two years. So, you know, it has survived the Michigan winter. It, so it's the thermal cycling is not yeah. an issue. <laughs> uh, and the hope is that, again, you know, we, we are chipping away at this problem little by little. Uh, so that was the first project, official project. So what kind of energy is involved in, in this sensor and how do you, is there, how do you get even energy out of, vibrations in the bridge so we use a piezoelectric transducer so okay. the, so and piezoelectric takes mechanical energy and converts into electric into electrical energy uh, but the challenge there is that once you embed the sensor inside let's say concrete yeah the strain levels are in the order of micro strains which means that the energy that you can get is in nanowatts so okay. what does a nanowatt mean so let's say you know if i just touch a table like yeah. you know if i'm just uh, let's say I put a finger on the table. I'm generating a microwatt. Oh well. So nanowatt is like you know thousand order, thousand times smaller than that. Oh, yeah. So the challenge there was how do you design a ch chips and electronics that actually can power itself at that nanowatt level? We decided upfront that you can't do wireless. Yeah. And you can't do wireless transmission. So what we could do is that you can use that energy and store that some statistics of the signal into a non-volatile storage. And given my past background in working with some of the non-volatile, analog non-volatile memory, I knew that it was possible. So definitely, you know, using a few nanowatts of power, we were able to show that, yes, you can, you can 
you can at least record some of the statistics that are required. Uh, now, on the algorithm side, of course, you know, the, you can't make a full-blown processor again with nanowatts. Yeah. So that's where the, my structural engineer collaborator came in, and he said, hey, there are, there are these well-designed algorithms that the structural engineers use that just uses thresholds. Okay. Okay, so as soon as the signal power goes beyond a certain threshold, you just log the data. You just say that, uh, that you just count it as one event. Yeah. And if you can count the statistics of the event, at least as a structural engineer, you can make some predictions, hmm. whether the structure, this part of the structure could fatigue or it has been subject to certain, you know, uh, I would say mechanical impact or not. Right. So what we did is that we designed an analog processor specifically tailored to implement that algorithm, but okay. it's completely self-powered. All within one nanowatt or few All nanowatts? All within a few nanowatts, yeah. A few nanowatts, wow. Did you, for so how do you even read things off of it? Do you so for the, in the initial prototype, we put an RFID interface. Yeah. Okay. So what it would do is that uh, um, the non-volatile memory would map onto the memory of the RFID. Okay. So it's effectively saying that the tag identifier is changing. So RFID is this technology that's used in tags and all these things. So you can, I think you can even find them in grocery store aisles. Yes. Like that. So, so if you have seen this uh, weird circular things yeah. that are attached to your T-shirt, yeah. that's an RFID tag. Yes. So RFID works by taking power from the reader itself. Yes. And then yes, and and if you have gone through like Walmart through yeah. these giant antennas, yeah. the doors okay. which are there, that's an RF antenna, wireless antenna that is powering the coil. Okay. The tag. And so we use the same technology, but then the reader, we have to be close to the sensor okay. to be able to interrogate the data right. that is being stored. Right. So now, like in WashU, what we are trying to figure out, how do you do that interrogation at like 60 and 70 miles an hour? Yeah. So that's a challenge, that's because, a challenge. because current RFIDs are slow. Yeah, you they can maybe read them at a few meters an hour a few meters an hour <laughs> and the best technology are the ones that you see on the toll roads okay. even there you have to slow down when you have to go through the through the toll roads um i've been through some toll roads i don't know what technology they use but you don't have to slow down but they might be different they are different yeah, they're they different but yeah. the one with the tags are the ones which you yeah. know th that you have to slow down yeah so self-powered sensor is uh is is one of your research areas um what else are you working on so in WashU, the nice thing is that because the um, the school is relatively small, yeah, uh, you get to interact with your colleagues from the other department. Yeah. So when I came here, I ran into some of these other professors, uh, one in biomedical engineering, one in material science. And the professor in uh, biomedical engineering, he his area of interest was uh, olfaction in locusts. Yeah. And insects. Olfaction is the sense of smell. Sense of smell. And yeah. so what he was investigating that how some of these locusts actually, uh, you know, use odor as a cue for some of their survivals. Huh. Um, I like never thought locusts can smell. Yeah, so locusts. Their their <laughs> antenna. Smell. Their okay. antenna is the nose. Okay. So when you see the insect, you know, whipping their antenna, they are actually scanning the environment so they can capture as many molecules as possible. Okay. And so for locusts, it's like an evolutionary response. So they have to, because when they forage for food, that's what they're trying to sniff out. Um, so 
one of the ideas that we came up with is that, okay, if we record directly from the brain of the locus, because the locus is able to sniff everything, uh, practically everything, mm. uh, but it doesn't respond to different odors uh, behaviorally. Because for food, like a smell of, let's say, diesel, it doesn't mean anything to the locus. It doesn't have to respond behaviorally. Yeah. But the antenna is able to detect that. And the higher centers of the brain are able to create a representation of that odor. It's just that the next center, the, the behavioral part of the, of the brain, it's not responding. Yeah. So we thought that, okay, if we could somehow bypass the behavioral part and directly tap into the signal processing part of the locus brain, then we could take those signals and process them in silicon. Mm. And then we could classify the signal on using a silicon processor. And that way we could use, uh, we could design a hybrid system, half biology and half silicon, there's a cyborg system, where you could practically use the olfaction capability of an insect to do something useful, like sniff out target odors. So the project, so we applied for a funding for the Navy and so we got the funding that was mainly detecting specific explosives, uh, trace explosives in the environment. So the idea there was that how do you replace some of the sniffer dogs with sniffer locus? Because you know with sniffer dogs, you have to train the trainer as well yeah. to, to understand the behavioral cue of the dog. Yeah. But then if you are bypassing some of the behavioral centered parts of the brain or the, or the brains which are responsible or the, or the part of the brain which is responsible for the behavior of an organism, then you know the classification is we think is more accurate. You don't have to train anything. And then insects, you can deploy them in mass scales. Yeah. Um, you don't have to worry about you know, maintenance issues. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's one of the projects that we actually feel very passionate about because yeah. we see there is a big, uh, broader impact of this. Yeah. And then this is a nice intersection between biology and silicon and, and chips. I'm trying to think why uh, why you picked a locust instead of let's say some other insect. Yeah, so locusts. Uh, so historically, locusts have always been sturdy. Yeah. So they can fly long distance. Okay. Without and they can migrate. So okay. they migrate from one part, you know, to another. And then the best part of the locust is that they survive for long for quite a few days after surgery. Yeah. So even if you you know put electrodes, you take uh, their cuticle out, which is the op outer part of the brain. Uh, they are sturdy enough that they can still you know, respond. Okay. Well. Uh, so whereas in other insects, uh, you know, after the surgery, they may not survive. And then, of course, you know, this is to leverage the expertise that was there in WashU. So, yeah. uh, so Professor Raman at BME, meaning his area is uh, area of expertise, is using locusts as a way to study olfaction. Oh well. So locusts are obviously much smaller than dogs, so they're easier to maintain and grow and yes. all those things. But they pros they probably provide a unique challenge for making an interface. Like yes. they're so small, how do you even connect anything to the antenna? Uh, well, so we don't connect directly to the okay. antenna. It's just that the antenna maps onto a specific part of their brain called an antenna lobe. Okay. And you tap into some specific parts of the antelope. Okay. And as long as you have, you can record from uh, 
uh, I would say, sufficient population of the neurons. It doesn't have to be a lot. Yeah. Uh, you can do a fairly good classification. Yeah. So we are using like two to four electrodes for now. It okay. doesn't have to be a high-density yeah. electrode here. But then you have to you have to use your expertise in these self-powered, very low-power things because you can put a battery pack on a dog, but you can't put a battery pack on a locus. It's not going anywhere with a battery yes. pack. So, so there we are trying multiple strategies okay. there, you know, because the insects are kind of the, they call them, they are the marathon runners of the natural world because they burn a lot of energy. Mm. So when they, are, when they are hovering, they are practically burning like, uh, like you drinking 80 cans of soda oh for wow. a meal. So, wow. so there is, they're dissipating a lot of energy. It's just the question is how do you tap right. into that? So we are investigating, uh, you know, mechanical harvesting strategies from that, you know, from the flapping of the wings, vibration as the insects are moving around. Uh, and then of course, solar is always an option. The light, you know, that, that is always universally present. Yeah. Um, but initially uh, for the initial backpack, we do have a tiny battery. Uh, it's just that you have you have to make it last longer. It's, it can't. It's probably a very very small battery, a few yeah, grams. Yeah. So like right that, now yeah. our target goal is to shrink everything below one gram. Okay. So the backpack has to. Uh, so for it for the locust to fly. Oh wow. Uh, so so that's where the the whole integration is focused on at this stage. Um, but then you know once the the chips are reasonably small, so they don't carry that much weight. It's as you are saying the battery. Yeah. Is the the energy source is the biggest? Um, I would say the that determines the weight. So you're working on self-powered sensors. You're doing cyborgs. Yes. What, what else are you doing? Well, so uh, as I said, you know, my bread and butter is analog. Okay. So and we are trying to still explore different uh, forms of analog computing. Okay. And one of the recent things that you know, now we are trying to explore is how far you can push the limits of energy efficiency um, in analog. Yeah. And one of the new projects are, you know, how can you make systems that are thermodynamically driven? When I say thermodynamically driven is that you're kind of exploiting the thermal noise. Okay. As a powering mechanism. Okay. So, and it turns out that biology does that all the time. So oh. like DNA computing is thermodynamically driven. Okay. So it goes from one thermodynamic state to another. Okay. You just have to make sure you, you predefine those states. Okay. And then it's the thermal noise that moves things from one place to another. So you're practically not dissipating any energy. Huh. So you pre-program the states. And that's how we are making uh, systems, like we have a system that is works as a self-powered clock. Okay. And we have been able to show that we can make the clock run reliably for two years and with a very good synchronization. And so you have two clocks that are running at the same frequency and uh, running at this running at the same rate. Same and rate. And exactly the same rate. Uh, like well, there is of course you know like some errors, some, errors, uh, some okay. synchronization errors, but with so you can work around those. Uh, yes, so okay. we can we can calibrate for some of those errors. Okay. So we are trying to use that to um, you know create a system like a uh, where let's say the identifiers, let's say your credit card number changes with time. Okay. So then if somebody steals your credit card number, that doesn't mean anything yeah. because that's, that, that is completely, you know, it's temporary. Huh. Uh, but then their goal there is that that clock has to be synchronized with the clock on the server. Okay. Uh, so then you can actually, you do authentication. Hmm. Uh, so we are using the self-powered clock effectively for, for this purpose as well.
So you, the bank knows the code. You know the code. The code is changing every second or something like that. Yes. Every in this case, every okay. minute because the clocks are slow. Okay. Every minute. That's still pretty good. And then the, once you so when you want to do an authentication or when once you when you want to verify your credit card number, you just see what the what your current ID is, mm -hmm. and because the clock is synchronized with the server clock, the server also has the same ID, and if they match, then it's a perfect match. Oh well, how do you even do the synchronization? Do they have to be done physically to together? Mm, no. So no. this is where we are exploiting some of the. Uh, phenomena, uh, synchronization phenomena that occurs in quantum mechanics and <coughs> quantum tunneling. Okay. And the specific type of tunneling we are using is called uh, Fowler-Nordheim tunneling. Okay. And there's a very unique property of uh, Fowler-Nordheim tunneling that we are exploiting that, uh, that makes it work under, um, I would say, room temperature conditions. Okay. It's that the property or the variance of the system actually reduces with time. Huh. Uh, only for a specific domain in a specific biasing condition. Okay. And that helps us implement reliable clocks. Huh. So tunneling is this phenomenon in quantum mechanics where particles can move across a barrier. Yes. Uh, in classical mechanics, that wouldn't happen, but in quantum mechanics, they can. Yes, it's just like, you know, yeah. if you have to push a ball from over a hill, you have yeah. to, uh, or you have to move the ball over a hill, you have to push it over the hill. Yeah to the other side, whereas in quantum mechanics, it's that the ball just goes through the hill. Yeah. And magically. Magically uh, appears on the other side. On the other side. So, yeah. so th and this phenomena occurs on electronic devices all the time. Yeah. And people have been using that, and we have been using it, uh, you know, for, for making diodes. Uh, but the specific type of tunneling that we are trying to use here is shows up and can be controlled only for specific structures. Okay. And that's what you know we are trying to do here. But everything is thermodynamically driven. It means that you don't need any other source of energy. Wow, that is that is just astounding. Yes. So you're doing all this research, um, and do you ever get time for fun? Well, the, the definition of fun changes <laughs> depending on what stage of your life yeah. you are in. So right now, having fun is is for me is like spending time with my daughter. Yeah. So, because uh, you know, she t takes up takes up a lot of time. <laughs> so you have to make sure that you know she does her homework, and yeah. then on the weekend she has her routines, specific okay. routines that you have to be involved in. Mm. Um, but other than that, yeah, when you, I think uh, when you go to conferences, yeah, when you hang hang up hang out with your friends, your old lab mates, that's when you know maybe. You know, you uh, <laughs> that's that brings back again the old memory. So that I think in an ac academic setting, the definition of fun is different. All right. Thank you, Dr. Chakravarti, for being with us. Sure. It has been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Did you like this podcast? Please leave us a review on iTunes so others can find out about it. Did you not like something? please drop me an email. Also, if you'd like someone to be on the show, or if you have anything to say at all, send me an email. My email address is chipchat at fastmail.com. Again, it's chipchat at fastmail.com. This podcast is sponsored by IEEE Solid State Circuit Society. 
Please check out sscs.ieee.org to become a member.